Our lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. If you would turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, and as you are turning there, um, let's stand together out of reverence for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke, chapter 21, we're going to begin reading in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this... They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Most of you undoubtedly heard about the latest school shooting that took place in Santa Clarita, California this past week, which you may not have heard, and this was astounding to me, out of the 46 weeks thus far in 2019, there have been 44 school shootings. Isn't that unbelievable? You add on top of that wildfires raging around the globe. Last year alone, there were 60,000 wildfires just in the U.S. And if you've been watching the news, places like Australia are, are, is burning as well. Last year alone, um, natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, uh, just craziness. This happening this year as well. In 2010, there were over 8,000 earthquakes in the U.S. Typhoons, uh, tsunamis, various refugee crises around the world, wars. There are currently over 40 significant armed conflicts around the world. We hear about Syria on the news. It's just the tip of the iceberg right now. You add on top of all of those things the toxic culture of outrage that we seem to live in, the opioid crisis, the harmful effects of the internet and smartphones, uh, particularly on children, but also on the mental health of adults. Between 1999 to 2014, the U.S. suicide rate rose 24% and has continued to climb and is now at like its highest level ever. Listen to this. This blew me away. Surging death rates from suicide, drug overdoses, and alcoholism, what researchers refer to as deaths of despair. 
are largely responsible for a consecutive three-year decline of life expectancy in the U.S. This constitutes the first three-year drop in life expectancy in the U.S. since the years 1915 to 1918. So despite all of the advances in medical science to like help us live longer, we are killing ourselves at such unprecedented levels that we are actually decreasing life expectancy in the U.S. Isn't that unbelievable? Blows me away, guys. So many unbelievable things happening in our world. So many terrible and horrific things happening in our world. To use the words of Paul, all of creation is groaning. All of creation is groaning. It's this deep, utteral, guttural groaning for, for Jesus to come and make all things right. Paul says it's sustenazo in the Greek. It's, it's the groaning of like labor pains. We've had four kids in our family. The last one we had at home. Like I know the, the guttural groaning of labor pains. Many of you do as well. But this is not just the guttural groaning of one woman giving birth. Paul says this is all of creation groaning together. But yet the real insanity of this to me is the fact that so, for so many people, the whole of their lives revolves solely and miserably around this broken and groaning creation. For so many people, this is all there is. God can't be real. And so all that there is is this. Life really is this like true hamster wheel of accumulation. More and more. I've got to do this. I've got to get this. I've got to go here. I've got to fulfill my bucket list. And then I die. For so many people that we encounter at work and at school and in our neighborhood every day, like this is the life that they're living Surely if I make enough money, I will feel valuable. Surely if I have children, I will feel valuable. Surely if I'm married, I will feel valuable. Or married to the right person, I will feel valuable. Surely if I have that house, I will feel valuable. Or if I get that position, I'll feel valuable. Or if I look like that, I will feel valuable. And, and the prevalence of the internet and, and specifically social media, it fuels our overall sense of dissatisfaction with everything. Like have you ever spent an hour thumbing through Instagram or Facebook and then put your phone down and went, I feel so good right now. I feel so at peace with the world. Man, isn't God good? Isn't he so kind to me? I'm so happy with what I have. I don't want anything else. Have you ever felt that way? No. That's not what those things are designed to do. But we don't realize it in the moment. We don't realize the deep like underlying anxiety and dissatisfaction that this stuff is creating within us. You feel anxious because you aren't as pretty as other people or you don't have what other people have or their lives just look better than your life and yet for some reason we keep like going back to that well. Like isn't that just like the definition of addiction? Isn't that like textbook edition? I know that this is doing this to me, but I, I, I just can't stop. So, so hopefully most of us realize that if you are a Christ follower, your response to the brokenness of our world, to the groaning of creation, it should be different than that of everyone else. 
our neighbors and the folks we work with, who for them, this is it. This life is really all there is. Shouldn't the people who believe, as we read earlier, that there is going to be this world to come where there's going to be great peace and there's going to be an end to death and there's going to be an end to tears and, and like even wild animals are going to live in harmony with one another. Shouldn't for people who believe that that is true and that that is coming, shouldn't our response to these things be different than the rest of the world? Hopefully in your faith life and in your everyday emotional life, you are longing more for the world to come than you are longing for this world. Hopefully that is true. Hopefully things for you hinge way more on the world to come than they hinge on things that are happening in this world. So, so how do we encounter and respond to what we see around us? How do we deal with all of this brokenness, with disasters and war and violence and racism and hurting? And I um, mean, aren't you glad the, the, the elections are over? Aren't you glad you don't have to see those commercials anymore and get the mailers and have the things on your doorknob at the house and the robocall? Like, aren't you glad that that's over? Just all of this... Argh! What is our response to this stuff, guys? Like, what do we do with all of this? Today's text finds us in Jerusalem. It's the final week of Jesus' life. Like, we are kind of journeying to the cross at this point. And, and, and we find Jesus teaching in the temple. His disciples who have been traveling with him for some time, primarily outside of Jerusalem, are looking around going, wow, look at this place, Right? Look at this, man. Look at these noble stones. Quick history lesson on the temple. The temple that the disciples were seeing was what was known as the second temple or Herod's temple. The first temple was built by Solomon, King Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. It was built about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. And it was, you can go and read about it in the Old Testament, this incredible, ornate enormous, luxurious temple. People were coming from all over the world to see Solomon's temple. There's this whole account of the Queen of Sheba coming to see Solomon's temple and all of its splendor and all of its glory. But that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. 586 BC, the Babylonians come in, King Nebuchadnezzar, they destroy the temple, they ransack Jerusalem, they kidnap many of the people, and they take them back to Babylon. And this begins what's known as the Babylonian exile. Decades later, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, the people who were exiled start to trickle back to Jerusalem. They start to come back, and what's the first thing they do? What's the first thing they think? We've got to rebuild this temple. And so they start about the task of rebuilding the temple, but what they build was nothing like the original, this second temple. It was nothing like Solomon's temple to the point where for the very, very old people at that point who had actually seen Solomon's temple, they wept over it. There was this big generational gap. Young people are going, man, this is incredible. Old people are going, oh, you don't even know. You don't even know what used to be here. So later on, around the time of the birth of Jesus, there was a man named King Herod. King Herod was famous for decreeing that all baby boys be murdered. This is what ultimately led Jesus and his family into their own exile in Egypt. But this same King Herod went about a massive 
restoration, renovation, expansion of the temple. And, and to the point where it actually became um, what could be considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was larger than even the Acropolis in Athens, Greece. It was just this massive undertaking. And, and so it became known as Herod's Temple. Um, today, even, you can go to Jerusalem and you can see remnants of the temple. Um, it's a destination for many Jews, many, many tourists. Uh, it's known as the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. Um, however, what's interesting is, is that wall, it wasn't actually a part of the temple itself. It was a part of what was known as the Temple Mount. So it was basically a retaining wall that was built around this hill that the temple sat on. For Jews in the time of Jesus, guys, the temple was everything. It was the epicenter of religious life. It was truly like a thing to be marveled. Much social life, much commerce took place within its walls as well. However, Jesus comes along, verse 6, he tells his followers, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this actually wound up being one of the charges brought against Jesus by the Jews. It was construed as, as him saying that he was going to destroy this place, as if Jesus was trying to lead some kind of like violent revolt against the religious leaders, that Jesus was going to lead this revolt and, and he was going to be set up as the king of the Jews. This is kind of what people expected. Even, even his own followers weren't totally clear on exactly what was going to take place. Many of them thought that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom in the way that any old king would set up a kingdom. They thought he's going to be the new David, right? He's going to set up his throne and he's going to take over. But Jesus utters these words. He says, these things are going to come to pass and they did. Only a few short decades later, in 70 AD, the Romans did in fact destroy the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. So Jesus was right. But so often, people take these words of Christ and try to apply them to our own times. Um, not just 2019. People have been doing this for centuries in their own time period. And in doing so, they missed the fact that these words were primarily for the apostles about things that were happening in the apostles' day. Like, it's historical fact that the temple was destroyed. It's historical fact that Jerusalem was destroyed. It, it's historical fact that many have come along claiming to be the Christ. It's historical fact that the followers of Jesus were persecuted and brought before courts and killed. Just read the book of Acts, right? And, but even outside of the Bible, plenty of extra-biblical historical sources document this. But if you were to read these words without that context, you could easily see our own time here, right? Wars, check. Tumults, check. Nation, nation rising against nation, check. Earthquakes, famines, pestilence, check, check, check. Terrors, yeah, man, Sounds like the nightly news, doesn't it? So surely Jesus is talking about America in 2019, right? Yet, yet, just pick a date in human history. When have these things not been true, right? When have these things not been going on? When have there not been wars, right? When has there not been human suffering? Just, just read through the Bible itself, right? 
long before the time of Christ. When have these things not been the case? We have to be so careful, y'all, that we don't read ourselves into the pages of Scripture where we are not. We have to read the Bible contextually and, and not make that mistake. But, but with all of that said, there is, I think, a critical takeaway for us as followers of Christ living in the time that we live in um, from this passage. Look at verse 13. I think this is key for us. Here's what Jesus says. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. I love how the King James puts this. King James says, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. This idea that in the midst of all of these terrible things, that as a follower of Christ, that people would look to you and that this is your chance, that this is your opportunity, that this is the moment for you to have an answer to these things. And believe me, we have an answer to these things. Coincidentally, the word that is translated as witness or testimony is the Greek word from which we get our English word martyr. This will be your opportunity to be a martyr. You know, the first two centuries of the church are known as the Great Persecution. Followers of Jesus were being killed in record numbers, like thousands and thousands of them. But yet, at the same time, Christianity was spreading like wildfire. All across the known world, all across the Roman Empire, up into Europe, Christianity was blossoming and exploding And yet all of these people are dying at the same time. Here's why. People looked at all of these followers of Jesus who were willingly and often joyfully going to their deaths for Christ and thought, wait a second. What do they know that I don't? Like, it made a huge impact on people. Guys, there are incredible stories that came out of that period, like that of a guy named Polycarp. Um, weird name, uh, but Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was the bishop of an area known as Smyrna, um, which is in modern-day Turkey. And, and Polycarp, um, quite possibly at the time of his death, w- was maybe the only remaining church leader who had actually known one of the apostles personally. Um, he died in 156 AD. Um, and the story goes that Polycarp had had this vision that he was going to be burned alive. Um, and, and he told people that he thought that that was how his life was going to end, that, that he was going to be martyred for Christ and that that's the way that it was going to happen. And, and so when soldiers showed up at his house, he didn't protest, he didn't fight them, he didn't try to run away, but instead he let them in. And, and the story goes that he joked with them and he served them food and, and he said, can I have an hour to pray? And they were, and he was 86 at the time. And, and so they said, yeah, take an hour to pray. And they, even the soldiers were a little bit distraught that this was happening. And, and so they wound up giving him two hours to pray. And, and so then they take him away and 
he is burned alive. The story goes that he uh, was going to be nailed to a stake so that he would stay in the fire. And he said to his captors, the God who is able to hold me for all eternity is also able to keep me on the fire. What an incredible thing to say. The story of Polycarp's death, though, was written down, and it was distributed, and it was deeply inspirational to people. Like, it, it just started to make its way through the world. Here's an excerpt from that account. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp, and on hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, meaning to deny the faith, saying, have respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, down with the atheists. So this is fascinating. At this point in time, the Romans thought of Christians as being atheists because in their mind, they don't believe in this pantheon of gods, they believe in this one God who isn't real, so they don't really believe in God, so they are atheists. So that's the way that they thought about them. So repentance, say, down with the atheists. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium, and gesturing toward them, he said, down with the atheists. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Here's what he says. He said, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So these things are written down and they are distributed. And people go, wait a second. What's happening here? It it was clear that these men and women and many others actually believed that God was real. Actually believed that God was real. That death was nothing to be feared. Like, this was true countercultural living. It was deeply compelling. And guys, what we need today, in the broken, groaning world that we live in, what we need today are more true witnesses of Christ. More people who are willing to speak His name. We need more real martyrs. You know, that word didn't originally mean somebody who would die It just meant somebody who would give a faithful testimony, but because of the great persecution, death became associated with that word. We need more true martyrs today, people who truly stand out as living in contrast to the world, not just kind of folding in with the world and putting on this Jesus-y veneer, but people who truly live counter to the culture. I've used this illustration before, but it's so appropriate. Um, If you have mainstream culture, right, you often look at American Christian culture and find that it is not a counterculture in the way that the way of Jesus was a counterculture. You find that that it is a subculture. It's a culture that exists underneath the mainstream culture. Right? So, so we have all of our Christian versions of things you find in the mainstream culture, right? We have our Christian music and we have our Christian literature and, and just put that word in front of all kinds of things. No, I'm not saying all of those things are bad things, but just Christian subculture is not necessarily the way of Jesus. 
So you can wear your Christian shirts, and you can listen to K-Love, right? And you can not cuss or smoke or drink or do any of those things and go straight to hell, right? Because you're not truly following Christ. We can easily follow the Christian subculture and not follow Christ. And in that, like, a devious scheme of the enemy, because it seems right, like, and, and, and these, you look at them and you go, these aren't bad things, but yet it can become like a works-based gospel. Well, I do these things, so surely God is pleased with me. Whereas the way of Jesus is something totally perpendicular to our culture. Some people say the way of Jesus is upside down. And, and that's so true in the teaching of Jesus. The things that you think you should do, Jesus says, no, don't do those. Do the opposite, right? Well, I tell you not to hate the people that persecute you. I tell you to love them and pray for them, right? These are the kinds of things that Jesus says. So he takes the way that we just naturally think we should respond to stuff, and he turns it upside down. These guys, these martyrs, these early followers of Christ who were willingly and gladly and even joyfully going to their deaths, like they recognized, oh, but this world isn't all there is, right? This isn't it. There is so much more to come. We talked about this last week about what is to come, about what Christ is ultimately doing, what he's working out, that he's creating a new heavens and a new earth, that that he will actually raise the dead to new life, that he will do incredible things in the future in setting all things right. You know, Paul says, I actually count all of this stuff as garbage now compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So these things that I, for so long, have been so invested in, like being a Pharisee among Pharisees and being committed to this and that and being all about this thing and that thing, man, I, that's just all garbage now compared to Jesus and knowing Jesus. Not just what Jesus has done, but the fact that he's invited us into that, to know him and be known by him. We need more true witnesses who truly have bought in, who truly believe those things and are not afraid. And isn't it so incredible that the thing that we have to fear is not death here in America. The thing we have to fear is social awkwardness or ostracization, right? It's not being burned alive right? The irony is, if it was that, it's possible that Christianity would be blossoming and blooming and expanding and exploding. But because there's no real physical consequence, many of us say nothing. Because the greatest fear is that I'm going to distance myself from the people who I really want to like me. Paul says, that's all garbage. It's all garbage. Do you know who Christ is? What are you more concerned with? Are, are you more concerned that you would know him? Or are you more concerned that you would know these people who you want to like you? What's of greater importance to you? Because if, if really in your heart, if it's really this, then who is Jesus to you? 
Does what he has done for you, does that really matter to you? We need more true witnesses. How many of us can say, man, I count this as garbage? Now, there are beautiful things here, right? Our children, our families, the world itself, there's beauty. We see God in the midst of this, but yet what we know is that this is dying. This is groaning. This is passing away. As we read earlier, there will be a new heavens and a new earth to come. That's why there's all this talk in the New Testament about not loving the world. Not loving the world. John says in his first epistle, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Paul says in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This, this is over and over again. It's not just about material things, not just about loving stuff. It's about where is your hope? Because if really your hope is in this, it doesn't matter what I say about Jesus. This is really where my heart is. Is in this place, in this stuff, in getting more, in attaining position, in getting to the place I want to be. Which one of those things is really garbage? You can't love the world or the things of the world or be conformed to the world and also be a witness for Christ. This is Jesus saying you can't serve two masters. This is also why the stories of the saints are, are so important. Man, one of the things I greatly appreciate um, about many church traditions, uh, even the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox churches, they love to tell the stories of the saints. They love to tell the stories of the people who have come before us and, and gone through much harder things than most of us have ever experienced. Now, those aren't people to be worshipped as if they are gods, they're, but, but there aren't patron saints that are watching over you. That's not something we see in Scripture, but, but these are people to look to for what does it look like to truly be faithful to Christ in the midst of true adversity? Maybe we need to do a better job of telling stories like that of Polycarp. I mean, his story should be told and retold and retold, and it's deeply convicting even to me. Do I love Jesus like that? Do I love him in that kind of way where in the face of all of this that I would say, no, 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 he's been faithful to me, so why would I ever not be faithful to him? So I wish we had more time today to dig into all the forms and shapes that this could take, but here's the thought I want to leave you with today. Do you talk to other people as if Jesus is real? We're talking base level down here, guys. Do you even talk to other people as if Jesus is real? We talk a lot around here about declaring and demonstrating the gospel, but do you even talk about Jesus, like at all, in your normal everyday life? It is, is it possible for you to go through your day or even your week without actually saying anything about Jesus to anyone else. And I'm not talking about like sitting down and going, let me present the gospel to you. I'm not talking about that. I'm just going mentioning Christ. 
Like mentioning what God has done for you, mentioning what He is doing for you, mentioning things that are going on in your faith life. Do you speak to other people as if that is real? Or or is this this bifurcated thing for you where that stuff exists over here in a compartment that I access on Sundays and maybe when I'm alone, but when I'm in the rest of my time, rest of the week, man, I'm at at school or I'm at work or I'm doing whatever, and, and, and that's just not what we're doing at that point in time. It isn't? Have many of us bought into the lie that that Jesus belongs in certain parts of our life, but isn't actually Lord of the whole of our life? Have we bought into the notion that, like, for some reason, everything isn't ultimately about him? That some things are just about us? They don't really have anything to do with Jesus or that there are parts of our life where Jesus doesn't have anything to say about those things. Guys, those things don't exist. That's a lie, a facade that we have bought into. Do you even talk as if he is real? What is he doing for you? Where have you seen him working? Is he on your lips? Three things as I close. I think these are things that we have to intentionally be practicing. If you just think, oh, oh I'm just going to try to do a little bit better at that, it's not going to happen. We have to be very intentional about this stuff. We have to be very intentional about this stuff. Three things. First of all, I think you have to make a plan to daily remember the truths of the gospel. You have to make a plan in your own life to daily remember the truths of the gospel. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you, but, but here are just some basic kind of classic ways of doing that. One, reading the Bible. Reading the Bible. Praying. Meditating on Scripture. Fasting. Listening to worship music and, and praising God. Like, like, just right there, five things right off the top of my head. Those aren't in my notes. And you may go, well, yeah, those are just the church answers. Guys, those have been the church answers for 2,000 years. These aren't new answers. These aren't platitudes. Like, how are we going to know him well if we don't read his word? How are we going to know him well if we don't talk to him and seek to listen to him? What does it say about us if we have no desire to worship him in our lives? Guys, we have to do this daily. This can't be a Sunday morning thing. This has to be a part of the fabric of your existence. We have to individually and personally daily remember the truths of the gospel. And then secondly, we have to daily recite the truths of the gospel to ourselves as we go about our daily work. We have to be reminding ourselves of what is true and what is not true. Uh, this uh, weekend, we spent a little time in the hospital with our baby girl, Penelope. She had a fever on Saturday. Our pediatrician said, hey, just abundance of caution. Why don't you guys go to the ER and let them do blood work and do all that stuff. So we spent the night at the hospital last night with the baby. She's fine. Fever's gone. Hopefully going home pretty soon today. So pray for Lindsay as she's trapped at the hospital. Um, but it's so easy in those moments to just give ourselves over to anxiety and worry and fear and forget that God actually loves our child more than we do. That God is actually way more capable of taking care of her than we are. In in those moments, we go towards anxiety and worry because we actually recognize our powerlessness, right? But yet, what an incredible opportunity 
to go, thank you, God, that you are in control of all of this. And thank you that you are way more powerful than I am. Thank you that you are way more powerful than any of these doctors are with all of their education. And thank you that you are good. What a, what a great opportunity to just rest and trust. And so, you know what we've done? We've prayed a lot over the last 24 hours. And, and as simple as that may seem, guys, I truly believe that there's great power in that. So is prayer part of your daily life? Are you reciting the truths of the gospel to yourself? Are you reminding yourself of what Christ has done and that he is good and that he loves you more than you even love yourself? Finally, we have to rehearse speaking the truths of the gospel in community with other people who also speak the gospel. And this is where the church comes into play for us. Not only is this the place where we learn about what the gospel of Christ is, this is the kind of practice field before we go out, every week we say a benediction, right? The benediction's all about sending. It's all about now. Hopefully you've been refreshed with the gospel. Hopefully you've been filled with the gospel. And, and now you are sent out into daily life. And if you leave this place and immediately turn it off and go back to whoever you are during the week where the gospel doesn't play a role and the, and the truths of Scripture don't play a role and prayer doesn't play a role, then I don't know what to tell you. This time is for you to remind you so that you are filled and refreshed to now go back out into your life and to try to put into practice maybe some of the things that you are practicing here in a safe place with other people. So when we are together, this is your opportunity, guys, to talk about what Christ is doing in your life, to talk about the needs that you have in your life, to talk about the ways that you're seeing him work, to talk about the ways that he's speaking to you, or maybe what you see him doing in your midst around you, or to talk to other people about the things that you're praying for, the things that you hope for. This is the place where those things should naturally happen, right? Maybe they don't naturally happen at your school or in your workplace, but they do naturally happen here, and I think it can prepare you for going into those spaces and being willing to just naturally weave into conversation what God is up to in your life. If our lives do not look markedly different from everyone else who have no hope, then why in the world would anybody want to be a part of this, right? If this, if you are not good news because Christ is good news to you. If you are not good news, then what in the world are people going to want? What's amazing is with guys like Polycarp and others, even as they are burning to death, people looked at him and thought, that's good news. This isn't it. And this guy's figured it out. There is more. And it's greater and it's better. And that is the gospel. Thanks be to Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And thank you for a reminder in my own life this week to be devoted to your purposes. To be devoted to your gospel. And your gospel not only has saved me, but is saving me and will save me. And the same is true for everyone here. Father, would you inspire us with the stories of believers who have gone before us, the stories of the apostles, 
and the saints. But would you also give us a very clear understanding of what it looks like to truly live for you in our context daily? Would we be the kind of people who are willing to be weird or risk being ostracized socially or risk being awkward socially because we truly do buy into the idea that you are everything and nothing else compares to the surpassing worth of knowing you. God, would you so embed that within our hearts that it just naturally oozes out of us? God, I pray that we would be people who live compelling lives. Because other people look at us and realize, oh, they figured something out. Oh, oh they, they get something in a way that I don't. And, and God, all glory goes to you for that. That's all your work. But would we be um, empowered by your Holy Spirit to be faithful to you in those moments? To not shrink back, but to be bold and to seek to demonstrate and speak the gospel with clarity. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your gift of grace. We ask all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.